thank you for joining us today. In this episode, prior members will recount their experiences while inside the religious group I grew up in. If you would like to learn more, share your story, or become a sponsor, please visit us at coltonconnecticut.com. You are now listening to Colton Connecticut. My parents had a home church. They had broken off from a, a church out in uh, Mansfield Depot, Connecticut. Not because they disagree with the past or anything else like that, but it was a long drive. My father felt like he could better connect with people in our location. We lived in Pomfret at that time. So he started a little home group. And he, as he witnessed to people, more and more people joined and there were, you know, Christian conversions. And so the home group was growing. And uh, he received a call one day from David Ferrero, who was the pastor at Mansfield Depot Christian Church. He had mentioned that he had been called by a, a folks from England about a ministry opportunity, which involved hearing directly from God, which involved the possibility of seeing spiritual gifts in action, healing, casting out of demons, all that type of thing. And my parents were, and still to this day, are very convinced of the veracity and power of the gospel and the things that the apostles did. My parents accepted that offer. They got in touch with Sam Werberly and John Monahan and John Hibbert, who were all, uh, I assume that the team who consisted of John Hibbert, Mrs. Sp- uh, Jean Spademan, and a few others were probably on, on the United States side at, at that time, kind of recruit, recruit churches or people to join in, in their crusade, if you want to call it that. So um, my parents met with uh, John Hibbert and were convinced that there was perhaps a legitimate prophet in their midst, which was uh, they named as Gene Spademan. And that was kind of the beginning of our involvement. We used to drive from Pomfret and attend church services in Jewett City at what was then Dayspring Church of God. Sam Wibley and John Monahan were pastors there. And so we came down a couple of nights a week. We came down, I believe at that time, there was a Wednesday night service. And we came down for Sunday morning and Sunday evening services. We'd drive back to Pomfret, have dinner on Sunday, come back down, go to church until church ended sometimes around 8, 39 o'clock. And then we'd be back on Wednesday for the 7.30 meetings. That was the beginning of it. At some point with the vision for Jewett City, because the prophet, quote unquote, and I refer to Gene Spaman as the, as the prophet, as they called her. Many will deny that they called her a prophet. She would deny that she was a prophet, at least in public. In private, that was a whole different matter. And, and I'll probably move on to that uh, as we go along. However, there was an encouragement from Gene Spademan that God had wanted to make Jewett City his jewel city, a city set on a, on a hill that would shine out the light and radiance of God in the gospel. And my parents were encouraged to move from Pomfret to Jewett City. The place we lived in Pomfret had belonged to my grandparents. My grandfather passed away when I was very young, about four years old, but they had bought that property after they had lived in New Hampshire for a a bit. They bought the property for my grandparents. 
And my grandmother lived in a trailer at the back of the house, about 100 yards walk or maybe less, about 50 yards walk. And she had a trailer there and she was very comfortable. She visited frequently. She was there for Thanksgiving, Christmas, all the holidays, you know, 4th of July cookouts we had out in the back. She worked with us in the gardens. We had huge gardens on the property. And my parents were encouraged to sell that property in order to move to Jewett City. When my grandmother found out, she was pretty disappointed. Now, the house was well-worn and, and probably could stand some upgrades. But that being said, my, my, we were probably in a position to do that. But my parents figured at the time, well, if we're going to move to Jewett City, let's not bother. My grandmother really didn't have any choice in the matter. She was more or less told we're, we're selling the property and we're moving and you're going to have to find some place to live. So she found a, uh, a senior housing place in Woodstock and that's where she moved. A few days after we moved out, the woman that they had sold the property to was very interested in turning everything wild again, tore down the house and tore down the trailer and bulldozed everything into the foundations. And I remember stopping by there some weeks after that happened and absolutely sobbing my socks off, thinking this was where I grew up. This was my childhood, this was my home, and it's been absolutely destroyed. Kind of go over that and moved to Jewett City in around about 1981. I was engaged at, at that time to my future wife, and she lived in Putnam, which was only 15 minutes from Pomfret. We moved to Jewett City. I had car issues. I had other issues. It was very difficult to get to see her. And we, it was quite a strain on our relationship at that point. We made it through. Fortunately, we've been married 36 years, which is awesome. But the estrangement to my grandmother, from my parents and the rest of us, she never, ever got over that. She would talk about all those memories on Bradley Road in Pomfret. She would talk about all those things, all the good times, the Thanksgivings, the, the times she walked down snow-shoveled paths with four feet of snow on each side after we'd had some major snowstorms and shoveled paths from the, the, back ho- the, the back door of our house up to her trailer and up to her, her deck. And I remember very distinctly her walking down the pathway, pink fuzzy slippers with a cup of coffee, black coffee in hand, because that's what she drank. But she taught us a lot. She taught us how to forage wild plants, and she taught us how to grow gardens well. And we understood a lot about the environment we were living in because of my grandmother. It just really put a strain, particularly on my mother and my grandmother's relationship. And I don't think that relationship ever recovered. So that was a sacrifice that my parents made. And the, and the ministry team, again, I, I think I've named them already, encouraged them to make. So they bought a house in Jewett City, an expensive house, a big house. We had a big family. I was the oldest of eight kids. So there's a bunch of my brothers and sisters still living at home at that point. So they need a big house. So they got a very big, expensive house, probably out of my dad's range a little bit. But, uh, you know, they made the payments. They did the stuff. They get by. So, you know, the, the we made visits all the time to Woodstock to visit my grandmother. And you could tell there was something not right there. And eventually, over time, it, it just kind of drove this division. So then moving to Jewett City where we were encouraged to move. And I can't explicitly say why that was encouraged. All I can think, and the general feeling was, by being in town, by being close to the church, we could be more effective. What we didn't know was coming was 24-hour prayer sessions, 
disciplinary sessions and all that, which made it, as we were gathered into one square mile that Jewett City is, we, we, we kind of got sucked in. It seemed very innocent at first, but we got sucked into this, into this thing that eventually became something that my parents abandoned. They weren't in Dayspring for a very long time, maybe about four or five years before they finally realized there was something up and, and left. They never said anything to my wife and I because they were afraid that we would be encouraged to cut off all our relationship and all our conversation with them. I'm going to talk a little bit about how that move then affected my career. When my wife and I got married, I was working at U.S. Gasket and Shim. I started from the bottom in, in, a, in a metal cutting department and slowly worked my way up through, became a traffic manager which was in charge of shipping and, and, you know, loading trucks and making sure everything got measured, weighed and appropriately labeled for going out for shipping to various parts of the country. We had a plant in California. We had a plant in England. Uh, we had a plant in Ohio that I shipped stuff frequently to. So I kind of moved up relatively quickly and it was a great job. I left that job for a short time to go to work for my dad. He was an electrical contractor. And when they moved to Jewett City, I felt I needed to support my dad. And his business. And that's what we did. And, and eventually, dad didn't have enough work. The economy was kind of sour. That was, you know, the beginning of the, the end of the housing market and really the, the housing bust that went on into the 80s. And so work was pretty skinny for my dad. And eventually he said, look, I can't, I can't do this anymore. So I went back to U.S. Gasket and Shim. I got a job. Again, I worked all the way up through the departments. And there was a job posted to become a, uh, an estimator. And it was a job that I was, I was kind of wanting. And so I applied and I was accepted for that job. They encouraged me to take that job. My wife had gone, she worked in a bank and she had gone to work at Sam Wibley Tire, which Sam Wibley, who was one of the pastors of the church, owned. And they considered it God's business because Sam wanted to take all the profits from the business and pour them back into Dayspring and our sister church, King's Chapel in Norwich. And Bethel Church, which was the church in England where the prophet Gene Spayman and John Hibbert and some other ministry members, the Jenkinsons and Wesley Best were all from. They made frequent trips over here. The airfare was expensive. And so that needed to be underwritten. Sam had bought a, a relatively successful business from his father. Wibbly Tire had two locations. So Kathy at one point be convinced to work there with another lady in the office. One Saturday, I happened to go by and I was going to go fishing because I had Saturdays off. I worked a normal 40-hour week like everywhere else the humans did back in that day. And Sam trapped me kind of downstairs and brought me up to his office. He said, I think you make an awesome salesman. And I want you to come to work for me. And I said, I just got promoted to this other position. and I love the job I'm doing. No. And he said to me directly, he said, what if it's God's will for you to work here? And I said, well, if it's God's will for me to work here, then I guess I don't have much choice. He said, well, I'm going to ask Mrs. Spademan. So Sam Wibley made the call. The answer was, wait. So this went on for about between two and four weeks. We waited. I kept on working at the job. I was being very successful. I was getting trained. I was flown to Ohio 
to get more training. They were very pleased with my progress. Uh, it was really a good job. And eventually I got a call from Sam that said, yes, it's God's will for you to come and work here. And I very regretfully gave my two weeks notice at U.S. Gasket and Shim. I was making pretty good money at the time. And when I, when I went to work for Sam, uh, the prophet said that I shouldn't lose any wages. That I, was, I shouldn't take a cut in pay to go and work for Sam at Sam Wibbly Tire. And I didn't. The problem was I was working a 40-hour week at U.S. Gasket and Shim. I began to work a 55-hour week at Sam Wibbly Tire. So you can kind of make the numbers work. I took a big cut in pay hourly to go and work for Sam because it was God's perfect will. And I'll just explain God's perfect will the way that it was explained to us. There were three positions, or there were, as it was explained to me and others in, I, I have been calling it a church, but it was, it, it was a cult. I have no doubt about it. We were controlled. We were manipulated. We were abused. And I'll get to that. But there were positionally three things. You could be out of God's will, which means you're either unsaved or you're a disobedient Christian. There was God's permissive will, which you were still kind of in God's will and he would allow it, but it wasn't the best place for you. And then there was God's perfect will. God's perfect will meant you were walking right in the center of the road that he wanted you to be on. You were in a place where you could win souls. You could be the best Christian you could be. You're obedient. Your prayer life would be flourishing. Everything. And the ministry and the prophet could tell you what God's perfect will was for your life. And that's what I was told was God's perfect will for my life. So I left a good paying 40-hour-a-week job in a good profession to go to work for Sam Wibley Tire. That was in 1985. I stayed with Sam Webley Tire until 2000. I held various positions in that job. I went from working 55 hours a week to as much as 80 hours a week. When I became in charge of the road service department doing commercial truck tires and tractor trailer tires and agricultural tires, we had a 24-hour service. So anybody could call you anytime you had to go out and fix a tire. I ran that. 24-hour service for a three-year stint by myself because there was no one else to do it. So it was not uncommon for me to work 80 hours a week, you know, and then get called at two o'clock in the morning and go out and change a tire or several tires and be out for three more hours and then expected to be at work back on time. The problem was we were also expected to attend, attend church services regardless of the number of hours that we were working. So I would sometimes walk in to some of the church services smelling of cow manure because I'd just been on the farm and I was advised and encouraged not to go home and get a shower, get cleaned up, but make sure I showed up to service. So I feel like that was all part of the manipulation that was going on. I, I kind of liken, liken it to everybody says, well, it's like the frog in warm water. You keep turning up the water, keep turning up the water. Eventually the water is boiling, but the frog doesn't know it because it's getting slowly cooked. There's no reaction to the increasing temperature. And that's kind of how it was for a while with us at, at King's Chapel, Dayspring, Bethel churches. But the intensity of the expectations of remaining in God's perfect will increased. I know at one time I was so discouraged about five or six years into my employment with Sam that I actually applied for a couple of other jobs and I 
had interviews. I also was running a, a small photography business at that time, doing very well. I had an invitation. I did so well on some of the wedding photography things that I did. I had an invitation to be flown by the bride and the groom to Puerto Rico where the wedding was taking place and charge them my full prices and do the wedding in Puerto Rico. Sam got wind of that and that got kind of telecommunicated over to England. And the word came back when they pulled me in a back room and said, Syro, which was uh, Mr. Spaven's nickname, said, get cleared up or cleared off. And so they basically were threatening me with judgment from God if I chose to leave Wibbly Tire or if I chose to do stuff on the side like the wedding photography and things like that. I was totally dedicated to Wibbly Tire and to the church. During this time, things kind of got more intense. It started out with the day spring as very lighthearted fellowship at times. And then there were times of intensity. And the things we tried to do for outreach to community, we borrowed a, a horse-drawn carriage hay wagon type thing from a local orchard. And we sang Christmas carols going through the streets uh, around Christmas time and stopped at some of the local bars and sang Christmas carols outside and tried to reach a community. That was very early on. As we progressed, that community outreach ceased. And everything became very introverted. Everything became inward focused. We, we needed to be more disciplined. We needed to be more ready to pray at all hours of the day and night. We needed to be more ready to give of all our finances. One of the favorite sayings of the church was give until it hurts. The other thing was you cannot give God. The give till it hurts sticks out to me particularly because even though I wasn't getting paid the best wages at Wibbly's, well, I, I made enough. Kathy had eventually left Wibbly Tire and gone back to work in the bank. And so we were, we were doing okay. And very often, the church presented needs. They didn't always tell you what the needs were. They just said it was a big financial need to doing God's work. Well, Kathy and I had been, you know, going along, doing our thing and scrimping and saving to go on a vacation. We wanted to go on a vacation. We wanted to take a, a week and go to Vermont, rent a timeshare. So we had pretty nearly $1,000 saved. And we were sitting in church. They got up to the pulpit and there was presented a big need. There was a need in the church. They needed to collect, I forget what the figure was, you know, $20,000 or thereabouts. And they encouraged everybody to pray, to pray right then, to seek God, and then to give whatever they could, maybe more. You know, being convinced that this was God's work. We talked about it. We prayed. We talked about it. I said to Kathy, I said, do you, what do you think? Should we give us vacation money that we have? And we both eventually agreed. It was very heartbreaking to do. We'd worked a long time to have this. We gave that money. About a week or two later, we found out it was for Sam Werbley and his family to go on vacation to Paris, France. We didn't go on vacation for years after that. That was part of the control that they exerted. They really did convince us that we needed to give to this need. And that's how some of the money was spent. I can tell you about other instances because as I stayed in my time in the church, as I gained favor with the 
ministry team. As I worked my guts out for Wibbly Tire, my sacrifice was apparent because I spent very little time with my family. I didn't see much of my boys growing up. I missed a lot of their sporting events. I missed my son running into championships in New York and cross country. Very difficult times. And my kids remember that still. But we were kind of rewarded for that. I became eventually became an elder in the church. So part of that was, you know, meeting with the ministry, taking offerings, counting the offerings, kind of protecting the financial well-being of the church, making sure that not too much information got out about that. So it was very secretive about where the money went. So I, I did gain a kind of inner workings of where this money was going. Some of it was public knowledge. Some of it was Mrs. Spaben and her family went on a went on a uh, a thing to Disney in Florida, and they stayed there for weeks. And they so they rang up all the expenses in an American Express card, and we were expected to give and give and give. Matter of fact, their thing was give till it hurts. We leveraged our credit card to pay for some of those debts, which put us in debt. And we really didn't have the money to give. It was it was a very small credit card, but they extended a large amount of credit to us as we gave and gave and gave. And eventually we got to the point where we couldn't make the payments. And so it kind of put us in a world of hurt. And we were very close to declaring bankruptcy. It made it very difficult for us to purchase our, our first and only house that we bought. That money had to be given to pay the American Express bill. And as Mrs. Spaman and some of her family stayed down there, more and more people from England and some of the favored from the United States went down and spent time in Florida at Disney. And I, I can't tell you the exact amount of the bill, but I can tell you it was several tens of thousands of dollars that was spent in the early 90s to give Mrs. Spademan and her family and some of the folks that she felt ministered best or met her needs best be down in Florida with her. We frequently engaged in 24-hour prayer meetings to take down principalities, which are these demonic rulers over great areas of land. And, and often it meant traveling to these various areas. The ministry team and Mrs. Spaman would stay in a hotel while we engaged in, in round-the-clock prayer an hour in the middle of the night, sometimes an hour of the day, sometimes two hours at night after working all the hours at Wibbley's, and many of us were working many hours at that point, the saying was, a workman is worthy of his hire. And the other saying they used very frequently was, God doesn't send a prophet on fool's errands. So they used that to be able to stay at some of the best hotels in the world, in the regions that we're supposedly praying for, to see these demonic powers brought down. And we were told specifically how to pray. It was almost like chanting prayers. I mean, if the Bible says that, you know, don't, that some people think they'll be heard for their much speaking, for their frequent repetitious prayers. And as much as I knew that, I still fell into that trap because we were told exactly how to pray. Stuff was written on a board in our room where we were praying a whiteboard of how to pray and specifically how to pray. Don't go out of these lines. While the ministry team was not suffering in their hotel room. They'd go out for dinners. They'd go out for lavish meals. And I can remember one specific instance where they went to Alaska because there was this huge dark power over Alaska that was affecting the lower part of the United States. And so they spent months at this hotel called 
the top of the world hotel. So Sam Weberly, John Hibbert, Mrs. Spademan, and a couple of those that I can't remember spent, I, I want to say it was in the order of six weeks up at top of the world hotel while we prayed. So that bill came to several thousands of dollars for each room, for each occupant. And they all had their own suites. They had their own rooms. And I know we were responsible for paying that. I can't tell you exactly how it was paid because that was a long time ago. And, but I know we paid those, we paid those American Express. And they always charge everything on American Express. There was no MasterCard Visa stuff because AMX had virtually no limit for them. And so they could ring up these ginormous charges and they basically browbeat us into so they wouldn't have to pay the interest charges on the card. And when they were paying interest charges on the card, it was almost like sin. So that's one instance I can tell you very specifically that they stayed. And I'll tell you, if anybody ever got in touch with Top of the World Hotel, they could probably find very easily Gene Spayman, Sam Wibberley, and John Hibbert's names on the, on the record books from the mid-90s when, when that was happening. So I was working a lot of hours. I involved heavily with the church, praying 24-7. The other thing that the ministry did that they were infamous for doing was kind of like divide and conquer. So if you had a problem, you get sent to England. If you needed a break for whatever reason, or if they thought you needed time away from your spouse, you got sent to England. So they paid your, for your flight and you stayed with one of the members in the church over there in their house. My brother lived over there. So frequently, if I went there, I stayed with my brother. But there was an instance when I was working for Wibbly Tire, when I had worked ridiculous amounts of hours, and I was encouraged to go to a seminar, a tire seminar that was in Malden, Massachusetts. But I had to make a delivery early in the morning of tractor tires over in Rhode Island. So the seminar started about nine o'clock. And it's about a two and a half hour drive from, you know, Jewett City to Malden, Massachusetts. I was expected to be at a reception. And then we we're going to go to, which everybody else was staying in a hotel. But I was told that I couldn't stay in a hotel. I had to go the first night, the reception, come back home, and then go back and drive up there the next day and go to the seminar and everything else. So we had a customer that had a need of, of tractor tires over Rhode Island. I packed those in the back of my truck the night before I left work. I was in Rhode Island at about uh, five o'clock in the morning delivering tires and made the drive to Malden, Massachusetts. Came back the next day, went up there again for the seminar. I had accumulated a large request for tires that time because I was a commercial sales manager too. And so I, on a lunch break, they said I could load my truck at the loading dock. So I backed up my Toyota pickup truck and the guys were rolling tires and throwing tubes to me. And I remember a box coming in at me, and that's all I remember. The next thing I know, I was laying in the bed of my pickup truck. I couldn't remember what happened. I, I got up, looked outside my truck, and there was a tube out there. But I had these leather palm gloves on, normal work gloves. And I remember thinking, how in the world did I cut my finger? So I took off my glove, and my pinky was pointed 90 degrees the wrong way in two different joints. So I then had to skip the rest of the seminar and go to Malden General Hospital, where I waited for several hours for treatment. No cell phones back then. I had a pager. 
which didn't work that far up in Massachusetts. But people were calling, wondering where I was for prayer that night as I was scheduled to pray at nine o'clock. When the situation was found out, about a week later, I was whisked off to England. And I was no doubt in my mind that that was for damage control. They said, you've worked so hard. God wants to reward you richly. And so they took me away from it. Rather than give me time off to spend time with my wife and kids, they sent me to England where I stayed with my brother. And we had an enjoyable time, sure. I spent some time with Mrs. Spaman. She tried to encourage me with things. So it was basically further brainwashing. And when I came back, Kathy met me at the airport and she had to organize for a hotel for us to stay overnight in Boston because I flew into uh, Logan Airport. And people were really not very happy. I had spent two weeks away from my wife and they expected me to be back praying that night. And Kathy had different plans. And at, at that point, things started to change a little bit for me. We started to see things that weren't correct. But I used to I used to preach in the church. And this is another interesting thing. Uh, amazing amount of control that went on in what eventually became known as King's Chapel because the pastor of King's Chapel had been encouraged to learn Spanish and go on a mission to Honduras, where we had a they were working in an orphanage in Honduras. So that church was going to be without a pastor. That was our sister church. So they made the decision to close King uh, Dayspring, which was meeting here in Jewett City, and all of us were to go to services at King's Chapel in Norwich. Hence, the cult, and if you look it up on the internet and everything else about King's Chapel, that's where the King's Chapel name came from. Dayspring's seldom mentioned anymore, but it was King's Chapel and uh, Bethel Church. After that happened, you know, you know, we were elders, we were named, and as elders, we were encouraged to preach. So the interesting thing was we didn't preach what we wanted to preach. Mrs. Spaman would get a text from the Bible. She was told by the Lord, supposedly, what text to preach. And then she would tell the preacher how to slant the message, what, what the message was to carry for its, you know, for, as a direction or as, a, as an implication. And I remember getting a call when I was working at Wibbly Tire, I'd come in from doing my normal thing. It was, a, it was a Thursday night. The call came at three o'clock in the afternoon. You're preaching tonight at six o'clock. And I'm like, I don't even have a Bible. So they found a Bible and they said, this is a text. And John Hibbert got on the phone and said, this is what I preached. And this is how this message should be preached. So I basically took notes from his thing, from his sermon added a little bit of my own stuff to it, made sure the slant was the correct way. And I went and preached that message. That was one of the methods of control. Even the preachers weren't free to preach what they should have. And to be honest, I had no training in preaching. There was not one minister in that church other than perhaps John Hibbert, who had been to divinity school. None of us had any kind of practical teaching from verifiable institutions to make us valid preachers. It's one thing to be someone on the street corner and preaching John 3.16. It's another thing to be preaching doctrine and trying to affect the, the lives of people in a church. And that was what we did. And it was wrong. 
and I was wrong for doing it. And it took me a very long time to recognize that. Thank you for listening to Colton, Connecticut, as I explore, investigate, and learn more about the religious group I grew up in, located in Norwich, Connecticut, and Mansfield Woodhouse, England, formerly known as Dayspring, King's Chapel, Bethel, Peniel, and the International Church. <laughs>